0: we're going to be in Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 23, and as I've talked about earlier, we are indeed in the throes of the Christmas season, for better or worse, right? We love remembering Christ's birth and, and what Christmas truly means, but there's all sorts of cultural baggage to the stresses of Christmas that maybe you're starting to feel like I am starting to feel. Having to get your shopping done, to do so within maybe a certain budget, that this year, Christmas, You know, our desire oftentimes is to be generous. Some of us are better at this than others. For me, I'll be honest, it's hard to be overly generous this time of year. I can feel the pinch all too easily, and we may be struggling with a sense of generosity. Others may be struggling that they're not able to be as generous as they would actually like, right? That you want to give more than you're physically able to do. And so as we Look to Philippians. We're going to be looking at these two things, and hopefully, they'll be a blessing to you as you navigate this season. We're going to be looking at what is godly generosity and also what is godly contentment. Things that are very countercultural to those outside of the church um, what it is to, to think of generosity as God would have us think of it, and what it is to be content. What is the secret to contentment? Something that everybody is seeking, but very few. Can find, And I think we find the answer to a lot of these things here in this text this morning. And so if you haven't gone there already, Philippians chapter 4. We'll be reading beginning in verse 10 through the end of the entire book. And so if you would please stand for the reading of God's word. Beginning in verse 10, the word of God says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. To God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Jesus Christ. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with you greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of God this morning. You may be seated. And so much can be said about this text, but my hope is to really cover two points with you this morning. What this text has to say first about godly contentment, as we see modeled in the words and the life of Paul himself, but also what this text speaks of with with regards to godly generosity, as we see in the Philippians as they give and support Paul and his ministry. And so let us begin with this idea of godly contentment. Paul begins this section, as he prepares to end this epistle, thanking the Philippians for their support. There's a strong history, a strong bond between the Philippians and Paul. And we've noted, as we've studied Philippians, his sincere affection for this church, that he has many positive things to say about them, that there was a good relationship there, both from Paul to the Philippians, but also from the Philippians to Paul that they looked at Paul and took a certain amount of responsibility in meeting his needs throughout his entire ministry. That in many ways, they were his longest partners in the work of the gospel with regards to a local church. And so there's a strong history from the Philippians of supporting Paul in particular. And it would seem at this time that they have revived their support for him. And Paul thanks them for that. If we look at verse 10, Paul saying, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. And so they had given to Paul throughout his ministry, but at some point their, their giving or their ability to give was hindered. But now as Paul is imprisoned in Rome under house arrest, they have continued or revived their concern for him. And so Paul gives great thanks to them, but he's also giving thanks to the Lord at the same time because this is evidence of God working through the Philippian church. And so I want us to take note of that in general. But it's also worth considering what Paul's genuine need for support was. We can sometimes read and operate out of ignorance. How was it that Paul went about and did ministry all those years in his life? How did he do those three missionary journeys? How was he supplying his daily needs for himself, having been under house arrest. You know, the unique situation that Paul is in, he has been imprisoned, he is in Rome, he is chained to a guard 24 hours a day and not able to leave his home. And so Paul is 100% dependent on the support of others at this time. But this is something that Paul had kind of lived out his Christian life Um, for quite some time, being dependent on the generosity of others so that the ministry that God was working through him could go forth. And so there was indeed a genuine need on Paul's behalf. And he says in verse 14, that it was kind of you to share in my trouble. The gifts brought by Epaphroditus to Paul not only helped further his ministry, but even probably met his daily needs for food and sustenance as well. And yet, Paul is not too quick to acknowledge his own physical needs because he says, in all circumstances, I have learned to be content. Paul go on to say that he's found the secret to contentment. Although Paul had very real needs, he was at the same time content in whatever situation he found himself. And this is something that we can all benefit from in reflecting on, that we may learn how to be content as Paul was content here in this passage. Verse 11, he doesn't speak too quickly needs. He says this, not that I I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I want us to notice that important phrase, I have learned to be content. Something that doesn't come very naturally. We talked about in our time of confession that, that we have these passions, that war in our hearts, that we may even ask God for things, but God graciously doesn't answer every prayer request we have because we ask wrongly to spend it on ourselves, that that we, even as born-again Christians, we need to learn contentment, what it is to be happy in Christ. And it's possible that maybe Paul's early struggle with this had to do with some of his prosperity prior to becoming a follower of Jesus. Paul was a very, as we've learned, prevalent Jewish figure prior to coming to Christ. Born of the right tribe, ascending in all the right circles, becoming a leader in some of these things, and with that maybe came some affluence, some wealth, some ease of life, and yet he gave all those things up, as we learned early in Corinthians, counted them as rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ. Having given up some of that comfortable um, living in his life, he probably did indeed have to spend time with God to learn this contentment, but learn it, he did. And learn it, we must as well. And let it be known that it is no small thing for Paul to say that he has learned to be content in all circumstances. If you're familiar with Paul's life in ministry, there were some circumstances that were quite dire. That when he speaks of his contentment, he knows what it is to actually be in need to be in want, to not know where his next meal would be, to not know if, if he was safe where he was, to be beaten, to be imprisoned. He recounts some of his struggles in his writings to the Corinthians of some of the things that Paul had to endure. Let me read just a few of them with you. Second Corinthians chapter 6 verses 3 through 5. Paul writes, we put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, being by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, and hunger. Paul knew what it was to be in want. In fact, that probably marked much more of his ministry most of the time. Paul speaks of other things that he had to endure, in Second Corinthians chapter 11, verses 25-27, through 27, he says, Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews, forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, dangers from robber, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and in thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches." And so have this be what fills out the background as you read these words from Paul that he has learned to be content in all situations. Verse 12 of chapter four, I know how to be brought low. We read about some of those low points in his life. But at the same time, he knows how to abound. I imagine that his time actually in Philippi with this Philippian church, that those may have been some of the abundant years and days that he experienced. If you recall some of the early converts, there was Lydia who was very wealthy, the centurion guard who may have had some good provisions as well. And so he maybe enjoyed some time of abundance and fellowship with this church. Nevertheless, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Paul's found the secret that so many people have been looking for, the secret of contentment. And he reveals what this secret is in one of the most quoted verses in all of scripture, maybe second only to John 3.16, but Philippians 4.13, it is here that Paul writes, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, what's funny about this verse is most often than not, it is taken completely out of this context. And context is important. Right? I call this the, the letterman's jacket verse, that it's typically the one that goes on your letterman's jacket. I can score this touchdown. I can overcome adversity because of Christ Jesus who strengthens me. But let us give special attention to context and how that transforms or better enlightens the true meaning of this verse that it has at its heart, this idea of contentment, right? Because when we take things out of context, we're actually not understanding them for what they're actually saying. I'll give you an example. There was a great commercial. um, I don't know how many years back, but I can still remember. I can't tell you what they were advertising, right? All the best commercials. You never know what they're actually selling when you think back, but they can be pretty funny. And I remember this commercial starts off and it's clearly this, this guy who's cooking a nice meal in his home or his apartment for what appears to be a girlfriend or, or a wife, right? That it's the nice Italian romantic meal. He's chopping the tomatoes. He's throwing the pot. He's making his own homemade spaghetti sauce. You see him kind of throwing some garnishes on there and, and whatnot. So you see all the preparation. He's lighting the candles, okay? And then at some point, apparently there's a house cat. And the cat jumps and knocks over this big pot of tomato sauce. And he was busy chopping whatever he was chopping as a garnish. And so He has this giant mess in front of him, this cat who's covered in tomato sauce, this big giant mess, and so he goes to grab the cat so it doesn't track sauce over in the rest of the house, and he holds the knife, and then the girl comes home. (laughs) Out of context, that looks terrible, and we could come to the wrong conclusions. It's a funny example of the importance of context, but it's important to know what surrounds an event, what surrounds the words here in this scripture. And we need to have in our minds what Paul is saying about contentment when we read verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It may be better just to emphasize looking at what came before, to to think of it this way. I can do all these things. What are these things? To be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. And in every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can be content when I have genuine needs that are being unmet because of him who strengthens me. I can be content even when there are years of abundance, not letting greed take a hold of my heart. And I would ask you to consider what is actually harder? To have God help you overcome your goals in life your obstacles scoring that touchdown or achieving that victory or to have God help you be content in all circumstances. If you are gonna have this as a letterman's jacket, I think it applies far more when you lose a game than when you score the winning touchdown. That I can still rejoice in Christ even though we lost because I'm content whether we win or whether we lose because my satisfaction comes from him, not from these things. And so this is the secret that Paul says that he has found. The secret to contentment, which is Christ Jesus. That he has given his life fully over to him. And this is the secret that the world is still looking for. It's the secret that maybe some of us in this room are still looking for or need to be reminded of. How can I be content? Well, You haven't already come to Christ. Because if you're looking for contentment in your job, in your career, in your family, in what you can achieve, having enough to live off of, then your, your heart will continue to be restless. Come to Christ. This is the invitation that Jesus gives Himself as well. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. And Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. To be content in life is to be at rest because of the rest that Jesus Christ offers you. Augustine, a famous theologian, has a quote that says, our souls are restless until they find their rest in Christ. Have you found that rest? If not, I invite you to find your rest, to find your contentment in a relationship with Christ above any other thing. Yet even those who have turned to Jesus, who have entrusted ourselves to him, we fall into these traps yet even still. Because we find ourselves in situations where we have abundance, or we find ourselves in situations where we may view ourselves in some kind of poverty, how can we be reminded to still be content in Christ? Well, let's look at abundance first. It is easy to think that if we just had enough, then I'll be content. But my friends, that is a lie. It is. It's a lie we too easily buy. Because so often, the more you have, the more you want. It can't satisfy you. And this is something that scripture reveals in a number of places, but maybe never so clearly than in the life of King Solomon. Richest, wealthiest, most powerful king throughout all of Israel's history. And yet he himself was never content with these things. Wrote a whole book about how he sought contentment or satisfaction in everything that the world has to offer, in power, in money, in kingdom, in wives in pleasure and all these things and all of it never brought him an ounce of contentment. So even in our abundance, we can be consumed with greed. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Even as born again Christians, those who have given ourselves to Christ, we can so easily fall back into trying to find our contentment in these things or fill in your blank. He who loves, fill in the blank, will not be satisfied with that very same thing. And so don't be fooled that abundance can finally bring you contentment. But an equal and opposite mistake would be that poverty is the solution. If we forsake all these things or if we put ourselves in dire situations, then maybe that will be the secret to contentment. Scripture yet again says, no, that is not a guaranteed course of action either. Because greed can still take a hold of your heart whether you have many possessions or none at all. We could unfortunately be greedy for things and seek them through ill-sought means, through lying, through stealing. Or I think maybe even more, more common is we could We could covet. We could be jealous of what others have and have this attitude, God, they don't deserve those things or at least they don't deserve those things as much as I do. So there could be a growing bitterness between you and other people and even you and God. And so the solution is to hold things in balance. Book of Proverbs, full of wisdom. Proverbs 30, seven through nine. We read two things I ask of you deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. or are warned of these two dangers, to have too much, to have too little, let us seek to be content with what we have. And this is something quite honestly that God's spirit has to do in you. It can be frustrating sometimes that there's no perfect formula for some of this stuff, but, but God's spirit is in you as a brother or sister in Christ, as a son or daughter in Christ. And if we genuinely seek him, tell him our desire to live contented lives, to find our rest in Christ and Christ alone, then, I'll think we'll, then I think we'll be making much progress in this regard. Because as I stated, even Paul had to learn what it was to be content in all circumstances. So let us commit to learn those very same things. Moving on, I wanna speak about the generosity that we see on display here in this passage through the Philippians, in particular, towards Paul. I have four general observations about godly generosity that I see in this passage, and the first comes from verses 15 through 16. Paul writes, and you, Philippians, yourselves, know that in the beginning of the gospel, When I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. And so one of the things that we need to understand is generosity is necessary for ministry to happen. Paul, in thanking the Philippians, calls them partners once again in his gospel work. And he gives them great praise and credit, saying, You were the old, you were the first, and at many times you were the only church to support me in the work that God had sent me to do. And he says, You were my partners in the gospel, that through their giving, they in many ways share some of the credit, some of the obedience of, of Paul going out and doing these great things to build God's kingdom. I'll remind you of what Paul wrote at the beginning of his letter to the Philippians in chapter one, verses three through five. He says, I thank my God in all of my remembrance of you in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. We spoke many weeks ago about the need for partners in the gospel, that this is how God advances his kingdom, that it's a team sport. And Paul is one of the first ones to acknowledge that it's God's work through the Philippians that allowed him to do what he did with regards to sharing the gospel in his mind and in his context, pretty much to the ends of the earth as he was able to do. And this would not have happened without the generosity of the Philippians. That Paul was able to dedicate his life, his time and energy into this one single purpose. Now, some of you may be wondering or remembering that wasn't Paul bivocational? Wasn't he a part-time pastor? Wasn't he a tent maker? Didn't he support himself during that time? And I will say, in some regards, yes, there were times in Paul's ministry where he did work the trade of making tents. But Paul also made it clear that this was not his ideal. And throughout most of his ministry, because of supporters like the Philippians, he was able to give himself fully over to the gospel work. And there was only three times in his ministry that he went back to making tents. And the rule was that if it was going to hinder the gospel, then he would provide for himself. And so the three times that it happened were in Thessalonica. One of the issues in that church was laziness, that there were many people, men in particular, who were just not working. And so Paul, to model what good God-honoring work was, worked a trade while he did ministry there. Later in Corinth, because it would have hindered the gospel to exact a wage from these really struggling church with regards to some of their worldliness, supported himself, but made it clear that he had a right and could expect some payment for the ministry that he was doing, but because of their lack, he would support himself. And then in Ephesus, because there was a tradition of pagan priests um, profiting themselves through their religious services, Paul for a brief period supported himself so as to distinguish himself from them. But in general, Paul was supported for full-time ministry. And as a result, he was able to do probably much more than had he been part-time for most of his life and ministry. Now, these principles reign true today. Are there times and seasons in which pastors should be bivocational? Yes, sometimes funds are simply not there, may be necessary at certain times, or it may work to be a hindrance to the gospel in some sort of way, but Paul does make it clear that the ideal is that men would be set aside for full-time ministry. 1 Timothy 5.17 says this, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor, labor in preaching and teaching. For the scriptures say, you shall, not, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. And so this may come as a reaction to, to, to some of us, right? Because pastors only work one day a week, right? Not quite. Um, but it is one of those things. I want, I want maybe to just, Challenge our thinking a little bit here. How likely or how comfortable would you be going to a surgeon who is only a part time surgeon, who works another trade, but does this as much as he can on the side? It might make some of us uncomfortable to entrust ourselves under someone's care who isn't fully devoted to that practice or to that trade. The same may be true with a number of professions whether it's a surgeon, whether it's a plumber, you fill in the blank, that there's value in having people devote themselves to a particular trade to excel at it, to better care for those who would come under their care. And I think the same reigns true with a pastor or with an elder, that to be fully devoted to the work of ministry is better for the health of the church in general. And so Paul is thanking them for supporting him in this way that he can continue, even while he's in prison, to be devoted to the work of the ministry. And the ministry continued for Paul. He continued to have people come in his home. He continued to teach. He continued to do evangelism. And we see even Roman guards converted and joined in to the family of God. And this would not have been possible without the generosity of this church and potentially others. Moving on, a second principle I see here is in verse 17, teaching people to be generous is not selfish. Let me read verse 17 for you. It says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Paul, as he thanks them for their generosity, doesn't want to be perceived as manipulating them into giving more. He's not seeking to enrich himself, but he's seeking to see more fruit abound as a result of their generosity. And so what is this fruit? Well, it could be many things. The fruit could be that, that more giving, more funds, often equates to more ministry opportunities, that there aren't barriers or things getting in the way of doing what God has called Paul or any other uh, person to do. And so there's less barriers, there's more ministry, but I also think as we talked about contentment, there may be just the fruit in the lives of those who are giving that they're not holding on to the things of this world as tightly, that they're growing in Christ as they grow in generosity. And as they grow in generosity, they're growing in their contentment with the Lord as well. And so Paul is teaching them to continue to be generous, but not to enrich himself, but to enrich the fruits that come from such generosity, both in ministry and in the lives of individuals. And yet our, our hair still stands up on the back of our necks as we talk about giving in church. I recognize that this could be uncomfortable for many people because it may seem that we want to enrich ourselves. Trust me, there's nothing in any church that I'm aware of that is a good gospel preaching church that when gifts go up, salaries go up. We don't work off of commission, most of us, I believe. But yet there's this hard, hard ability to trust that my money is in good hands that I'm giving to something that's worthwhile giving. And let me just remind you that the quality or the characteristics for, for being a pastor or being an elder are high for a reason. Because yes, we are prone to be selfish. We are prone to spend things on our passion and terrible things do happen in churches. Money is stolen. Money is misused, unfortunately. But nevertheless, just because someone else may choose to be sinful with your gifts and offerings doesn't mean that we should deny them in that ministry. There are many people who attend church regularly, but do not give their gifts and offerings because they can't trust the leadership. And I would say, if you can't trust the leadership with your gifts and offering, you can't trust trust them to shepherd you and to teach you God's word either. And so it may be best to choose a different church in which you have that trust that you could exercise generosity. Generosity is also part of our worship as we see in verse 18. Paul says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you have sent. And these gifts are a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. This should be our biggest motivation in practicing generosity and supporting ministry and churches. That it is part of our worship to the Lord. That these gifts are acceptable and pleasing to God. You may think of worship as simply singing in church. Worship is far bigger than that. A bigger view of worship oftentimes is thinking of worship as, as what you do with your life, your acts of service. And I say, yes, amen, we get that from Romans 12:1. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So we should sing to the Lord. We should serve the Lord. And we should also give to the Lord, that this is a sacrifice pleasing and acceptable to him. And I hope that you would ultimately be more concerned with pleasing God than any church accountant. No one argues that you should read your Bible. No one argues that you should pray, that you should go to church and that you should share your faith. But how many of us practice regular giving? How many of us, Don't complain when it comes time to paying for all of our streaming subscriptions, for our own selfish entertainment, but yet struggle to practice generosity to support the work of ministry. It's part of our worship. And the last principle that I'll point out here in this text is generosity is rewarded by God. Verse 19, and my God... Will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. That God, in many ways, does reward our generosity. Now, this is not a I'll give so God can give me more situation, how to enrich yourself, no. But God has made certain promises that he will take care of you, that your practicing of generosity, because we serve a good and gracious God, is not going to lead to your poverty. But more than that, it's going to do something in you, that there will be rewards for faithful service to the Lord, just like anything else. Some of those uh, rewards may not be tangible here in this world, but God is a good father who likes to give good gifts to his children. And so God has promised that your generosity will not lead to your poverty, that you will be considered a partner in the gospel and the work that is supported through your gifts, your offerings, wherever you choose to give them, will bring and bear gospel fruit to your credit. That you will have potentially the gift of greater contentment in your life. That as you learn to hold on to your money loosely, that you will learn the blessing of what it is to be content and not ruled by greed. And there may be countless other rewards that you receive from your master in heaven, as he says, good or well done, good and faithful servant. But it does come at a cost, literally in this sense. We'll be giving up what is rightfully ours. In many ways, you may experience some level of uncomfort. There may be decisions that change as a result of you choosing to practice generosity. But know that you serve a good and gracious father. So as we prepare to wrap up, and as we seek to be more generous, let us first remember the generosity of God. What he gave for you. I'll look again at 2 Corinthians 8:9. It says, "You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich." God is not calling you to do something that he himself did not do in his flesh as Jesus. He gave up the riches of heaven. He humbled himself, as we looked at here in this text, giving up of his life. There is nothing of greater worth than that, the perfect son of God, that he became poor so that we may become rich. We are now heirs with God. Romans eight thirty two. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things The only way I know how to increase my own practice of generosity, which I will confess is a struggle at times, is to be around generous people. And there is no one more generous than our perfect God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who gives of himself. And so if we seek to desire to be generous, let us reflect on the generosity of God, but also being around generous people makes you more generous. I don't know if you've, Ever had a generous friend who's done nice things for you, maybe taking you to a very nice dinner, one in which you probably wouldn't have gone to by yourself at a restaurant that was a little bit above your price range? But receiving that generosity makes you want to be generous in return. And we may not be able to give back exactly in the same way as other people have, but we can give by whatever means we have. Maybe instead of taking them to an equally nice restaurant, you cook the best meal you possibly can for them in your home. Same is true with regards to the Lord. We can never give as much as he has given, but we can give what we have as part of our love and our service to him and to his bride, the church. We can never be as generous as Jesus in giving up of his life. However, we can generously support the gospel work of his bride the church and as the whole church looks to be generous or looks to the generosity of Christ we spur one, on, one another on into the same practice and lord willing we will be well supplied here at Harvest Liberty Lake Church just as Paul said here in this passage that because of their generosity that there was no need there was no barrier there was no hindrance that the gospel could continue to go forth and as we conclude let me point to you once again to some of the fruit of that gospel that Paul imprisoned because of his gospel work, held in Roman captivity under house arrest as he concludes this letter, says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. That the fruit of this gospel ministry supported by the Philippian church was resulting in even members of Caesar's household coming into the faith. May God reap an even greater or similar harvest here in Liberty Lake with us. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you, first of all, for being a generous and good God. That you would give us your son, Jesus, that you would go to the cross willingly, paying the ultimate price, one in which we could not pay for ourselves even if we were to suffer an eternity in hell you are indeed a generous God. Help us to reflect your generosity and the way we handle even our own money. Lord, that we would give generously to those in need, that we would give as part of our worship. Lord, and that through our faithfulness to give, you would give us greater contentment in you, that we would find all of our needs, both physically here in this world, but more importantly, spiritually in you, that we, as Paul could say, we can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. And as we see contentment grow more and more in our lives, may be an attractive appeal to those who are still searching for the secret to contentment. We're putting more trust in the things of this world and have yet to put their trust in you. Would we be faithful not just to share that gospel message with our words, but to model it with our lives as we practice godly contentment? We ask this in your name, Jesus, and by the power of your spirit. Amen.